see we had a little exodus there. We hope they return shortly. They're not going to the promised land somewhere else. I'm going to start with a few statements that are obvious, but I think need to be rehearsed. This morning's topic has, uh, it's, we're going to address one of the articles of faith in our church statement, uh, our doctrinal statement, and I'm going to expand it just briefly to a couple of related considerations. But the obvious statements I think we have to go back to are simply this, that God tr created a perfect world in which humans could live forever in his presence. Those words were chosen with some care. I hope that you connect with the different pieces of it. God created a perfect world in which man could live forever in his presence. Man chose sin and marred the perfect world. A primary result of that is, of sin is death. That's what God said would happen if there is sin. But it doesn't change what God really wants for people. He still wants people to live with him forever. That was his intention. That was his creation. That was his plan. And he even had a plan for how to deal with sin. So I'd like for us to think this morning, this isn't intended to be a morbid topic. Uh, in fact, while it has some morbidity to it, it's intended to be an encouraging message. How does the Christian think about death? I've entitled it, Death, Then What? And I'd like for us to give that consideration. Some of the songs we sang actually go very, very well with this. Uh, I'd like to do just a, a couple of mental exercises as we begin to think about life and death in particular. First, the span of life. You think about how God created Adam and Eve. Uh, without sin, how long would their bodies have lasted? There was no death. So God created a body that could have lived forever which is kind of hard for me to comprehend because the only human bodies I know of are declining and going downhill after what they say. I've heard different numbers. Uh, some people say that structurally, uh, at a very basic level, our human bodies reach their peak somewhere in their upper 20s or lower 30s. And so if you're beyond that point, you're dying. Your body is declining. Uh, and there's a lot of us here beyond that point. So I have a question for you. Uh, let's do this uh, before we do that. No, let's do the question. What's the oldest person you knew? Just pop it off. What's the oldest person that you talked to, someone that you knew? 102. Someone had 104? Okay. That's living a little while. Uh, I knew someone at age 96. I think that's about the oldest that I've talked to people. Uh, that's a long time. 
you think about living most of a century, particularly the last 120, 140 years, that's a lot of change. The people that lived the bulk of that, an amazing amount of change. Uh, the Bible records, some of you who know me know I like this kind of thing. Uh, this is Old Testament ancestry creation to flood. Those bars represent lifespan and the timeline is from years from creation. So this is based on the biblical record in Genesis. But look at these numbers, if you can see that. Uh, Adam, 930 years. Seth, 912. Enos, 905. Canaan, 910. Mahalalel, 895. Jared, 962. And then we get to Enoch. He gets a short little bar, 365 years. He looks kind of, his lifespan doesn't look so long compared to these other people. And his life was cut short. Why? Because God took him, and the Bible says he walked with God. Then we go to Methuselah. That's the longest bar at 969 years, just a few years short of 1,000. And you'll notice all of those except two were over 900 years. Then we have, oh, incidentally, uh, if you do the math here, Methuselah died the year of the flood. Uh, traditionally, he did not die in the flood. He died before the flood came. Uh, in fact, there's a definition for his name that says his death will bring it, uh, meaning that after Methuselah died is when the flood would come. His son Lamech died just a few years before him at 777. He was the father of Noah. And then you see Noah's bar. It spans the flood. You see that little dash way at the top. That's the flood, and Noah's lifespan was 950 years. I have another one, not quite as detailed. I'll not read all of these, but what I want you to notice, here's why I put it on. You see the length of these bars on this graph? This chart has the next uh, dozen or dozen and a half generations, and you'll notice how those bars get really short. The one on the top is actually the, uh, the exodus. It was... This is from a timeline study that I had done. And so that top one is a 430-year span. It is not a person. Uh, but you have Shem, who lived quite a long time there over the time of the flood as well. The point I'm making is that beginning with the flood, lifespans significantly decreased to the point that where we get down to the Psalms, what is it, Psalm 90, I believe? Uh, yes, Psalm 90, verse 10 says the days of our lives are 70 years and if by reason of strength they are 80 years and then he goes on to say things about that but that by the time we get to the psalms sometime later that was at that point considered normal 70 to 80 years and what's interesting is that throughout history that decreased to where uh, it was lifespans were very short uh, not too many hundreds of years ago, and through the last hundred years, they have increased. In fact, uh, from Harvard Health, it says that in 1900, the expect life expectancy was only 47 years of age, and that peaked in 2019 at 79 years. It was for Americans. So currently, it's dropped a little bit. 
they're currently projecting 76, 77. So I want to do this other one other exercise. We will get to text. Here's a 100-year block. The people that live about the longest right now, they fill up most of this block or maybe a little bit more. What I would like for us to think about is our span of life, what's happening to us, what happens if we gray out everything after 77? And we say, okay, that's what the life expectancy is, and we get rid of that block. And now for me, what happens if I gray out everything that I've already lived? What's left? And some of you are saying, well, I'm past 77. Doesn't mean you're living on borrowed time, it just means God's not done with you yet. And God is the one that determines when the end of life happens. What I would like for you to do is to think about this. For me, in my upper 50s now, life all of a sudden looks shorter. And incidentally, 60 doesn't look very old. There's some people here who would say 60 is young. Life goes by quickly. We have a limited amount of time. And at the end of life is death. This is not meant in a morbid kind of way. But the reality is we're all living to die. Unless the Lord chooses to come back before that. But in the normal expectation, that is what happens. And I, don't, and I want us to look at this very factually. I want us to look at this biblically. And by the time I'm done, I think, I hope, that you look at that with hope. This is not something that needs to be full of fear and dread. You know, there's a lot of questions surrounding that. The life expectancy thing we talked about, that's not a guarantee. It's just averages. We don't know. Uh, without focusing on recent events in my life, I just tell you that a serious car accident makes you realize how quickly life could have been snuffed out. Talking to my sister this week who had the spleen injury, she just said, you know, 75% of these injuries are fatal. Mine wasn't. And in just a few minutes, she could have bled to death right there in the back seat of my car. Thankfully, she didn't, but just that quick. You're going from highway speed to a dead stop and unconscious people. Could have been that quick that we're in eternity. Any of us. That is how fragile life is. Should we be scared of dying? Will death be painful? What happens when somebody dies? Where do they go? Are they conscious and aware? Do they know what's happening to them? The Bible gives us indication of some of the answers to those questions, or to answers to some of those questions. I'd like to explore that this morning for a few minutes. One of the things we'll find is that we don't have a lot of specifics. We have more general descriptions in Scripture, but we can take from them and answer these questions. We're going to look at a number of scriptures, but before we do, I want to show you the article that we have in our, in our statement of faith. 
And someone recently asked, is this article even necessary? Is it deserving of an entire article all to its own? And fair question, I'm actually not sure. I think it could be combined with something else maybe. But I think there's a few key points in the article that are important. Of the intermediate state, we believe that the interval, catch this, the interval, there's a span of time between death and the resurrection. So this is describing, we do believe that human life ends, there's death, and then there's an interval normally until the final resurrection is what this is talking about. During that time, the righteous will be with Christ in a state of conscious bliss and comfort, but that the wicked will be in a place of torment, in a state of conscious suffering and despair, and we will look at a few of these references listed. One of the things I want to also highlight is another article, just two articles prior, Article 15 of the Resurrection. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the bodily resurrection of all men, both of the just and the unjust, of the just to the resurrection of life, and of the unjust to the resurrection of condemnation. And once again, there's a lot of scriptures that could be looked at there. So this isn't primarily a resurrection message, but you have to put that in there. There is a final resurrection coming. What happens when a person dies? Well, God is still in the process of redeeming this world. His big plan, the big picture of his redemption doesn't... For an individual who passes from this life, yes, it changes, but God's timeline is different. And in the big scheme of things, there are other events that will happen. And so don't think of this at all in a crude way, because it's not, but think of that interval as kind of a holding place. It's a place where the saints and the wicked are both awaiting the final resurrection and the final judgment. So that's what we're looking at this morning. What about that interval? What happens in between there? Um, Let's go to 2 Corinthians. I'd like for y'all to help me read this one. I have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. And what I'd like for you to note is this is one of the passages that highlights that those two things. We have death and then we have... Uh, the final resurrection, both of those are mentioned here. So reading all together, beginning in verse 6. So we always are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there you have that picture. Uh, Here he's saying in verse 6, knowing that when we're in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Verse 8, when we're absent from the body, when we die, then we are present with the Lord. And in verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And and so you have that thing of right now, when we're living, 
We're not physically present with the Lord like he was when he walked on earth. Uh, We'll see later he gave us the spirit in that interval. But then following death, once again, we are present with the Lord awaiting the final judgment. But that doesn't mean that we are in a... So I think it's important to note that the absent from the body, present with the Lord, that is a place of bliss. That's not the new Jerusalem. That's not God's end of wherever, God, whatever God's going to do at the end of time. It's not that yet, but it's in God's presence in that interval. Another thing I want to note here, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And he makes it very plain in verse 10 that this judgment, he says that each one may receive the things done in the body. The things that we do in this life, the decisions we make, the way we live, that is what this judgment is about. What we choose to believe and the way we live. It says here, we will be judged whether good or bad. All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I recently had a jury summons and I had to talk to the judge individually and had some trepidation about that. Not a lot, went well. But I was thinking about, you know, here's a man, I'm standing a couple of feet from him talking to him. Uh, He has the civil authority to determine what happens to me in regards to this jury duty. That's a minor thing, but can you imagine being at the judgment bar of Christ? Here is the judge of all mankind who has the authority to say what our eternal destiny is. Now, we have a choosing in that, but that happens in this lifetime. So I'd like for us to look at a number of things. I had different resurrection passages down. I'm just going to skip those. Uh, That's another topic, but I would like for us to look at several scriptures uh, regarding how do we think about death. The first one is about tents and buildings from 2 Corinthians. So look at, if you have your scripture, I don't have uh, this particular one. The next several I do not have on the screen. You'll need to look them up to follow along. The 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8 He uses this analogy, and he uses the words, the physical body being a tent, and he uses the future resurrected body as being a building. Uh, I find that really fascinating, a helpful way. When you think of a tent, you think of something temporary, at least I do, I think of something temporary and flimsy, something that's not going to last. When I think of a magnificent building, uh, it, the, the contrast is striking. That's a little bit the analogy he's bringing in here. So let's read from verses 1 through 8 of 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with their habitation, which is from heaven. Once again, another reference to that uh, eternal building, that resurrected body. If indeed we having been clothed, 
we shall not be found naked, for we are in the, who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. I love that phrase. Our, our mortality, our human, our human destiny with death, that is going to be swallowed up with life for those who are believers. That is going to go away. Verse 5, now he who has, pre- who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as his guarantee, as a guarantee. And you'll find that kind of language in other places as well. God gave us the Holy Spirit through this time when Jesus is not physically present on earth as he was, but his Spirit is here. Verse 6, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. And we've already talked about that. But think of, I think that's how we ought to think about life and death. We're living in a tent. This is my tent. It's flimsy. It's temporary. It's inferior. It's not what's going to last. God's got something better. He's got a building, eternal, not made with human hands. And he used the analogy, it's like, you get rid of this thing and let's really get dressed. He says, we'll really be clothed with that thing, whatever that other body is. I just say glory. That's... We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present for the Lord. So I think that's one of the first things in our mindset. Remember, this body is just a tent. The next passage I'd like for us to look at is in Philippians 1. If you would turn there, please, look at just a couple of verses. To die is gain. I'm walking through this with an attempt to inform how we look at death. First one is, it's, it's expected, you know, we've got this tent, it's going to go away, it's inferior. Now we've, we've got this thing of to die is gain. Philippians 1, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul is describing his situation with the Philippians. He's saying, it's actually better for you if I stick around and I'm willing to serve. He has a real heart of service. He's saying, but it'd be better for me if I would leave and go be with Jesus. That would be the better thing. And so he uses this phrase that's fairly familiar, to live is Christ. Right now, I'm living, I'm 
serving Christ. I'm doing what he wants. But to die is gain. I'm going to live for Christ while I'm here. We'll have the opportunity. But I'm going to something better that is a gain for me. Uh, that heart of service while living, I think, is one of the things we can have as a takeaway from that. The next one I want to go to is in the Gospels. Today you will be with me in paradise, Luke 23. Uh, it's the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. Two criminals have been crucified beside him, and they have different perspectives. Luke 23 records that, beginning in verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged with him blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? You get the picture here? We have three men dying, and there's a conversation going on. They are faced with death in the very near future. Verse 41, and we indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was giving this man a very positive response. Today, this wasn't something where he was going to have to wait weeks or months or years or centuries till God was done working. No, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's with Jesus in a place of bliss. And notice the criminal he expressed belief that Jesus was an innocent person, and he acknowledged, he said, remember me when you come to your kingdom. There was a faith that was present there. Uh, he believed that, there was, that Jesus was bringing in a new kingdom, and he wanted to be there with him. He had a believing heart. First Thessalonians 5, if you want to turn to that, I want to read a few verses there as well. And the phrase I want to pull out from there is, we should live together with him. This is mixed in with end times discussion, looking for the second coming of Christ. Already here in the first century, the believers were expectant of Christ's return. In Thessalonians in particular, they had some erroneous views of that, and some of this letter was to correct that. But in this discussion of the second coming, we have a few words of how we ought to look at the anticipation of being with Christ and being absent from the body. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, 
so that this day should overtake you as a thief. I love that thought. If you ruminate on that one, he's saying this will happen like a thief in the night, but then he's saying, but you're not in the nighttime. Uh, a thief can't come in and do his deeds of darkness in the, in the light in this analogy. And he's saying, you're walking in the light. It's not going to be like a thief for you. It's not going to be something taken away from you. It's a good thing. Verse 5, you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And you catch the last phrase there. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. We have the picture of being with Christ, either in this life as a follower of him, or once we die, believers once again being in his presence. That visual illustration, uh, if you're walking in the light and the God of light suddenly comes and appears or you're in his presence, what changed? Well, you're in his presence, obviously, but the light is still there. Walking in the light it's not a big shift. You can imagine someone walking in darkness and you have this instant on bright light. All of a sudden it's from dark to as bright as daylight. Now that's a surprise and a shock. But for those of us walking in light, we don't have to we don't have that expectation or surprise of wrath. He says God has not uh, let's see where is it? Sorry, God did not appoint us to wrath. Yes, verse 9. Not to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Glory. We have so much to be thankful for. One more thing I want to look at before we wrap this up. And this is now the flip side. We've been looking at it for believers, what happens. And I want to just briefly point out the destiny of the wicked from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. I'm going to read those, make a few comments. There's also the story in Luke 16. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there, but I do want to mention. But first from 2 Peter 2, this is the destiny of the wicked. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. You might note that phrase to be reserved for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And here's a parenthetical note in verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. He's saying, then, if these other things were true, now he's pulling it into the present. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation 
and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what he's saying is going to happen at, at the point of death as we leave uh, this world. There's a reserve. The unjust are being reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. Uh, I will, I'm going to stop reading there for the sake of time. Note in this you have several examples. The Lord knows how to deliver the righteous, like Noah's family and Lot. He knows how to reserve the wicked for judgment, under punishment, like the wicked angels, Noah's wicked contemporaries, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of those you have examples of God saving some and other people being judged, the wicked being judged. The wording in the scripture is they're cast down, delivered into chains, reserved for judgment. He did not spare, bringing in the flood, he condemned to destruction. Very sobering, sobering words. But that is the destiny of the wicked. If you look in Luke 16, and y'all will remember that story of the rich man seeing the poor beggar in Abraham's bosom, there are things that you could pull from that. One is that there's no crossing the gulf that is between the place of the wicked and the righteous. There's no going back and undoing what was done. What was done in life is set. We do have stories of people who have near death or short death experiences, whatever you want to call it. They come back for whatever reason. But those people who have passed on and are gone, the next resurrection is before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have the choice on this side of death to determine our eternal destiny. I want to wrap up with just a few considerations. How do we view the end of life? Death should be anticipated. If you go back to Philippians 3, you'd find Paul talking about that. He has this desire to know the power of his resurrection, he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. He wasn't dreading it. Does it hurt to die? Maybe, maybe not. Actually, death isn't what's painful. That's the release from pain. Uh, we don't know what the events are that lead up to death. That might be unpleasant. But death itself is a doorway. It's something that ought to be anticipated for the believer. It's how I walk into the presence of Christ from this earth. Barring the Lord's return, that's, that's the norm. And that's why I say we're all living to die. We should be. We should all be living getting ready to die because when we go through that door of death, on the other side is a place that we won't return from. It's forever. And it has the opportunity to be with Jesus forever. And it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity that we have to make that choice. There shouldn't be fear and torment in that. It should be an expectation and even an element of longing for it. And I know at different stages of life, I'm old enough to remember 
there's been a significant shift in the way I view it. When I was younger, it's like, I have things I want to do. I'm not ready to, I, I'm thinking I don't want to die yet. Not that I wasn't right with God, but I don't want to die. I've got things I want to do. And after a while, it's like, what could I possibly do on earth that would compare with that? What? Let's just go on. You know, it's to die is gain. What I, what's coming is so much better. So there's this element of we live for Christ while we're here. We long for that opportunity to be with him. We don't choose when we die. God makes that choice of timing. And we're on a journey. This is not a phrase original with me, but one that you've heard me use several times. I can't help it, sorry. It sticks with me. We're on a journey to the gates of glory. We, me and my wife, me and my family, me and my church family, the people around, walk together to the gates of glory. Some of us will get there first. We don't know who it is. Someone's going to go through. Others will be left behind. But that's where we're going. That's where I'm going. I'm headed to the gates of glory by the grace of God. Come along with me. It's a journey. We must walk the journey well. In fact, when you think about it, this side on that journey, what is the only thing you can take through the doorway with you? Your money won't go with you. Your clothes won't go with you. Your house and land won't go with you. The only thing you take with you is people and your faith in Christ and the things that you have done. You'll take that through the door with you to be judged by the eternal judge. We're on a journey to the gates of glory. We long to trade in our tent for God's building. We demonstrate a heart of service while living. We foster a believing heart. We live in the light and we long to be with Jesus. That is the perspective we have as we approach those gates of death. I'd like for you all to help me read one final passage from 1 Corinthians 15 that I think is very fitting as you think about death and resurrection. So if you would, read with me here. I have it on the screen, verses 50 through 56, all together. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.